including related to anything we've talked about or that practice we did just before the break and that model you know I created or offered about our three basic needs, three systems, and two settings. Okay, first gentleman, maybe the microphone right there. You keep your hand up. Michael can find you. Great. I, I was interested in your thoughts on the following concept. We are, those of us in this room, better off than 99.999 whatever percent of people who've ever lived. Why do we, why are we here? Oh, in this setting? Oh, yeah. Why, why are we That's here to hear question. you when we are, you know, we don't have lions chasing us, right. we have enough food to eat, so forth and so on. Right, right. No, it's a really great question, isn't it? I, my version of that <clears throat> was uh, at this event a couple years ago, the Wake Up Festival, which is put on by Sounds True, and they're doing it every year. And, and I, I found myself really asking them, why do people ever buy more than one book, right? You're listening, like I have audio programs too, and why, why would people want, why not find the one that works and then you're, you're cooked, right? And so, and I'll link that to equanimity too somehow. I think the first of it goes back to activation installation. And we, in psychotherapy, I think generalizes probably to coaching and human resources training in general. Psychotherapy is a robust, powerful intervention. Compares very well to many others. That's the good news. <laughs> the bad news is that really good research on psychotherapy, let's say 30 years ago, and we're talking here meta-analyses where people would pool dozens of th studies on, let's say, psychotherapy for depression or anxiety and get an average response to treatment, an effect size, okay? And then if you look at comparable good, strong studies today of outcome, average outcome, average response to treatment for depression, anxiety, whatever, you see no improvement over 30 years. No improvement on average. I'm sure there are individual therapists, individual therapies that might be an exception, but on average, there's no improvement in psychotherapy, as best we can tell. The data is a little noisy, but minimally, there's no clear upward trend. Okay? Why is that? We've had 30 years of new theories, 30 years of neurological research, 30 years of, of new personalities, new people, same average response to treatment. I think it's because we've gotten a lot better in 30 years in psychotherapy world at activating various states of mind, and no better at installing them in the brain. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where the opportunity is, yeah. right? Yeah. It's not to chase ever more clever, neat, cool, activated states. It's to find better ways to turn those states into traits so there's some kind of lasting value. So I think one reason why people keep coming back uh, is we, through our growth practices, don't help the lessons really land so they stick to our ribs and we become, like they say in behaviorism, one trial learners. You know, once is enough, right? So that's the first thing. Second thing, my own view, is that you're, to me it's weirdly ironic. Here we are in Western culture, saturated with um, 
resources that our great-grandparents didn't even dream of, let alone going all the way back. Most hunter-gatherers are living on the edge of starvation. And things got worse, research has shown, on average, when agriculture started coming in. People actually were more vulnerable when they started shifting out of hunter-gatherer lifestyles because they became more dependent on particular crops and the vagaries of the weather and also the depredations of others who would just steal their hard-won surplus, including in some kind of governmental structure that goes under the technical term kleptocracies. <laughs> You've heard of kleptomania stealing, democracies. These are kleptocracies where these powerful elites, which had a monopoly on force, would extract resor surplus resources produced through agriculture and domestication. So long story short, why is it that these days when we're living amidst such material splendor, there's so much consumerism, so much hunger, right? And I think a lot of it is because people are having momentary pleasures. They're feeling fed, they're being entertained, right? They're walking outside and they're not being, no bombs are going off in their pizza parlor, you know, okay. Um, and they noted, kind of vaguely in passing, they hardly feel anything. And then even if they do feel something, a momentary sense of pleasure at a, at a meal or being entertained by some te television or a moment of contact with someone, they don't stay with it long enough for it to sink in. So we're endlessly hungry even though we're living in the land of plenty. It's as if we're being served this phenomenal meal every day at the banquet of life, and we bring a tiny, tiny spoon. Or to use the Tibetan metaphor, the hell realm, the land of the hungry ghosts, represented as these godlike beings with godlike powers. Sounds like America in the 21st century in a lot of ways, right? Godlike powers, godlike beings with enormous appetites represented by these vast bellies, and very little capacity to satisfy their appetites, represented by tiny pinhole mouths. And I think, you know, we have all this stuff that's coming to us, but we actually internalize very little of it. One of my hopes is that as people, <clears throat> through one practice or another, rest more and more in the embodiment, the enacted embodiment, of the Third Noble Truth, less and less basis for craving, where they feel already more peaceful, they already feel relatively safe, satisfied, and connected, people will be less easy to manipulate with fear, right? less vulnerable to the power of fear, because they will feel strong and at peace already inside. Um, people also become less able to manipulate uh, with greed, and desire, and craving, and advertising, the result of which we can see globally, in terms of all the carbon being dumped into the atmosphere, which will inevitably lead to more and more climate change. And also I think that as people feel more and more naturally rested in a felt sense of being loved and loving that's increasingly unconditional, not based on external circumstances, more and more rooted uh, and woven into the who, where you come from, or who you are, as that happens, people will be less and less caught up in tribalisms of various kinds, us's versus them's, and less easy to manipulate into some kind of tribal loyalty, us against them, you know, because they will have the increasing capacity rested in 
feeling loved and loving, to see the whole world as us. That's my fond hope. Get a billion brains on green. You know, I think that's roughly a tipping point. Rested most minutes of most days in the responsive mode of the brain. And the world will have the possibility of a softer landing than the one it's heading than than the one it is heading toward. So so I think that. And then I think last, say I still have one more part. Can you believe it? No. Uh, I think Maslow's hierarchy. I think that actually as people have their Deficiency needs. It's interesting. He called them D needs for deficiency needs. You know, a raw survival. Uh, what was it? Uh, then there was, um, you know, prestige and power and belonging. You know, somewhere in there. Yeah, pleasure. Anyway, as those basic needs get met, you tip into B needs, being needs for self-actualization. And I think that's where people get more and more interested in spiritual practice. You know, it's it's hard to see a tree as an object of beauty when you're starving, but when you get those, lower, those other needs, those more fundamental needs, survival needs handled, the craving needs. When, you, when those needs are taken care of, then you're more able to relate to that tree in the frame of self-actualization. <clears throat> and I think after a while, people stop coming. Because <laughs> they just get fully cooked. You know? But here's the thing. You know, what did the Buddha do after he was awakened? He lived for another 40 years. What did he do? He spent a lot of time in meditation. He didn't meditate to become something. He meditated because it was a very simple and practical way in the body to be who he was, to be awakening itself, to be bodhicitta, the loving, awakened heart, here and now. Right. So, who knows? Maybe people will... Keep coming to these things so we all can just kind of hang out and love bliss with each other. Not a bad way to spend a Sunday. Okay, maybe another person and then I'll zip along. How about two people, one here and one in the back, so we'll start with you and then I'll go all the way. Catch. You'll be next. You'll be next. Okay, great. And I'll be more succinct, I promise, in my response to you. Hi. Um I'm just wondering with the second and third noble truths. I mean, I can wrap my mind around emotional suffering and craving, but I have a close friend who just received a a very potentially very devastating cancer diagnosis. And how does that translate in terms of absence of craving and, and, you know, imminent death and pain? It's it's so far touched for your friend. And um, I'm going to use this as a way to bounce forward and then I'll bounce back, so if it's okay. The, the first and second dart. You may be aware, familiar with this teaching already. Uh, it's the idea that life brings us inevitable, inescapable, physical, and emotional discomfort. From the subtle discomfort of a mosquito bite to, you know, the agony of a shocking loss of a loved one. Or, um, you know, I think of my friend. Uh, I, um, when he heard that his wife's uh, cancer had come back, and he as a physician knew that, you know, this was inevitable. The end was nigh. Just the look in his face, the anguish in his face. And I think it's important to appreciate that even though the Buddha's um, examples 
of what he called the first dart of worldly existence. You know, physical pain. We're mostly physical pain. I think it's important to appreciate that as deeply social animals, of course we're going to experience inescapable emotional discomfort related to uh, interpersonal events like losses from others or frankly being um, attacked or devalued or, or mistreated or discriminated against in a certain kind of way. Right? Drop a brick on the foot of a Buddha, it will hurt. Right? Uh, you know, the Buddha talked about feeling sad that his close companions, uh, Sariputta, passed away. So there is in life the first dart. So your, your friend, you know, is getting that first dart of shock, uh-oh, terminal diagnosis potentially, what does that mean? You know, that's the first dart of life. <clears throat> we'll all face it. We've faced it all. We've, we have faced and experienced many first starts already. Um, old age, disease, and death uh, face us all. Or perhaps even worse, dying young. You know? So the Buddha then said, though, that there's the second darts that we throw ourselves that make a bad thing worse. Or to use a deliberate play on the words here, the first dart is inevitable pain. The second dart is suffering. The cliche term in Buddhism is pain is um, unavoidable, suffering is optional. Pain is mandatory, suffering is optional in a human life, in an in a animal body life. That's where equanimity focuses. Obviously, there's a place for keeping pain in the sense of the first start to a minimum. You know, uh, I'm having some dental work done. There's a place for that. Uh, you know, if uh, we're in a situation where the road is treacherous, drive more slowly. Try to minimize, you know, the first starts in life. But inevitably, some first starts will land. Where most of the opportunity lies is in the second dart, getting angry at pain, being overly frightened, blaming oneself, um, ruminating anxiously about something, Developing a case against others. You know, the Buddha said getting angry at others is like throwing hot coals with bare hands. Both people get burned. My favorite definition of the second darts is related to a definition of karma. It comes from Stephen Gaskin, Monday Night Class, as well as he's the husband of the author of Spiritual Midwifery, one of the great, I think, parenting books. Anyway, uh, he says karma is like hitting golf balls in a shower. You know, we do those things. Those are the second darts, and those are the balls we hit ourselves. Okay? So that distinction right there is really helpful. And to ask oneself, am I in a second dart? I'm, pardon me, am, I, am I in a first dart condition where all I can do is ride this out, try to learn from it, accept it, uh, resource myself to manage it, make practical decisions as best I can? Right? Am I in that first dart place? And then also, am I adding second darts? Maybe understandably, but at least I can stop fueling that second dart process. I can disengage from it. I can help myself learn and practice and take in the good internalized lessons. 
that helped me get less and less caught up in the second dart. And that, for me, is what the rest of this afternoon is very much about, how to, how to practice with the second darts of life and prevent and manage them when they start to arise, disengage from those. Because the second darts, by definition, it's craving. It's your brain on the second noble truth. It's reactive mode. It's the red zone. If we're throwing second darts, in that regard, we're in the red zone. The trick is to get out of the red zone as soon as we can without making things worse by going red about being in red. Gosh darn it, I took that workshop and I'm still mad at myself. Now I'm really mad at myself that I'm mad at myself. You know? <laughs> See what I mean? It's a, right? And also, try to prevent it in the first place. And I think one of the, that's where this practice of taking the good is, is kind of like a double whammy in a good sense. It's a very fast way to draw ourselves out of red zone cascades, to start orienting around beneficial experiences and internalizing them and opening to them and even creating them without suppressing the pain. That's the art. That's the fine art. And also over time, through repeatedly internalizing resources inside, we are able to deal with the first darts of life without going red about them and throwing second darts. That for me is, would be a general frame. And actually, I'll, if you'll forgive me, and then I will get to you, I know, in the back. This gives me a way to make another key point, which is this part. And again, you have access to these slides if you want. Um, certain resources help certain issues. So maybe I'll use this as an example. If I'm facing a serious physical illness, for example, I had a, malign- a seriously malignant melanoma pulled out of my right ear, right ear almost three years ago. And with a brother-in-law who died of melanoma, uh, when I had the physician say those four words, yep, four words that you never want to hear, that doesn't look good. <laughs> you know, I had about a 10-day period in there where I didn't know what was going to happen. Happily, you know, I got, you know, how can I put it? To have a legitimate cancer diagnosis and yet to have get, come through it, I'm about as fortunate as they get because they pulled it out. It lived in only the surface of the epidermis, knock wood. None of those cells had migrated. And, um, you know, 10 days after kind of start to finish, it's, it was all gone. I had a seriously sore ear for the next several months, uh, but uh, I was okay. So when we face a physical illness or situation, in my kind of model here loosely, don't take it with a grain of salt, we're in the avoiding harm system. It's a challenge to safety, primal safety, rule one, live to see the sunrise. And you don't know if you'll live to see the sunrise, maybe a few weeks if not years from now, if when your physical safety is challenged. So to me, what really helps in that regard are to internalize resources and to look for uh, uh, activating resource experiences and installing resources that address safety needs. Which, by the way, this will be a structure for the remainder of this afternoon. We'll take some time with each one of these categories, some key experiences in each one that can deepen your equanimity and resource you, pardon me, or resource others to deal with issues. So, for example, someone has a, let's say, a life threatening illness diagnosis. Uh, 
it's nice to enjoy pleasure, approach rewards, but that doesn't really address your primal safety needs. Or it would be nice to have someone to say to you, oh, you look nice today. Great. Better than a stick in the eye. But it doesn't address my safety needs. What's going to address my safety needs? You know, coming to ter- some way of coming to terms with what might happen to my body, as well as, you know, looking for ways in which, at least in this moment, I'm basically all right, you know. Or there are fundamental aspects of me that will be intact, that will, that will not be invaded, using the Buddhist language, no matter what happens to me. There are things that I care about that are invulnerable. They cannot be damaged or harmed by this illness that may take my body out. It may be the cause of what faces all of us inevitably, which is our own physical death. Okay. So I would look for that. You know, um, I don't think, and I think that to finish up here, that often we try to hurry people along in the first starts, partly because sometimes out of good intentions, you know, we want them not to suffer so much. Sometimes out of bad intentions, we don't want to suffer so much because their suffering makes us suffer. Their pain makes us suffer. We're freaked out by their pain. We want it to go away. We want them to get over losing their husband or wife of many, many years. We want them to move on from dealing with a life-threatening illness, uh, get over some trauma. And I think there's a place for just really honoring the organic rhythm of the body. It takes time. It goes through phases. Um, as I said, my friend passed away recently, and um, his memorial was yesterday. And uh, on the, uh, he, he met his death as well as I think anyone can, fundamentally. He was profoundly at peace with it. And yet, someone who was very close and with him and said when, they, when he came over two days before uh, my friend died, they both had a good cry. Even my friend, a uh, man with a long history of spiritual practice, the body cries. It's okay. It's his way of processing the first dart. You know? No indignity to that. No, just that's it. It has to flow. So I think that's important too. That's obviously from the, in the frame of what can one do from the inside out. From the outside in, of course, we just uh, want to love people. All right. Catch. <laughs> Long pass to the person in the back. Hi. Um, so I had a question um, in the context of animals and fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. And humans were animals. It, it seems that animals, um, other than humans, can shake that off more quickly than we can when they get into those states. Um, is there any hope for us? <laughs> um, do we need, I mean, maybe there's something about having, not having the higher brain functions. I don't, I'm not sure. But, I mean, can we learn something from that? Yeah, that's, I th- well, one piece of that, I think, is animals don't throw darts. You know, like this this thing here, because they're um, they don't ruminate about the past or agonize about the future, right? Uh, I do know that animals can be easily traumatized by their experiences. 
particularly the ones with more complex nervous systems like mammals. Uh, I had a cat who was nearly killed by three dogs on a farm, and I saved her at the last second just inadvertently and in a way. And um, she was traumatized forever after. So one nice thing about humans is we can go do some EMDR. You know, we can go do something to work with it or some other method or approach. So I think both things are true. One thing I think we can do is, is learn from animals uh, just to be more in the moment and to be more embedded in a felt sense of being in nature. And there's a lot of research these days increasingly about eco-psychology, the idea that going out into nature is, is healing. I know for myself, when I've had things happen that were very upsetting or serious losses, um, going out into nature, you know, going to this beach by the sea or forest and just seeing how old the trees are, how old the hills are, getting a feeling of time passing, put my loss or the event uh, in a much bigger perspective. And I think there's something about that in our bones, you know. we. Uh, we, we evolved to live in nature, in natural settings. And, you know, this stuff's weird, right? It's weird, like, what? And so I, that, I guess, yeah. I think, well, last thing I'll just say on that, <clears throat> neurons that fire together wire together, even if what is firing is in the back of the mind. So if in the back of the mind, we're running some kind of anxious rumination, worry, it's kind of vague, worry, worry. Or we got, we're grumbling about something. We're, that other person, you know, our case about them, formulating that email we're going to send and rehashing that conversation and developing our case for why we're right and you're wrong, you know, it's American wrong. Or criticizing ourselves. Running the country and western song track in our mind. I've been cheated and mistreated. When will I be loved? Whatever. You know, I've gotten a lot more careful about what I indulge in my mind. You know, in the Buddhist line, I used it earlier, guard the sense doors, including the inner senses. What do we indulge in our mind? And that, again, is where the art is. We let it be there for a while, but are we fueling it? You know? A lot of these metaphors that he used are very useful. He used the metaphor a lot of fire, partly related to his time, where they were doing Vedic fire sacrifices, fire ritual. It was the language of the people he talked to. So think about fuel. You know, what are we fueling? Which, which wolf are we feeding? Which fire are we fueling? Right? The fire, as it were, of the third noble truth or the fire of the second noble truth? To really overindulge my metaphors, are we putting green fuel on the fire or red fuel on the fire, right? Which fire are we fueling? And uh, it's interesting that, as you may know, nirvana, nibbana, basically means going out, quenching, extinguishing the fire, you know, particularly the fire of ordinary craving and suffering. So I think it's good to ask ourselves, what am I fueling in my daily life practices? Which which master, which mistress am I serving? Which wolf am I feeding? Right. And then, um, particularly with a brain that's very vulnerable to learning from the negative. You know, very, very vulnerable to learning from the negative. Another metaphor used, just to finish, is about entanglement. That's really been something I've been coming back to lately. What am I getting tangled up in? What are the knots? 
right? And can I disentangle? Can I disentangle the stream of experience to be more disenchanted about it and, and more relaxed about it, less grasping after it? Um, and can I take my neurotic trips of various kinds and kind of disentangle them, open them up for the great healing tools traditionally of the physician, light and air, disentangling. Right. So there, there are two. I think dogs don't entangle themselves. Cats don't entangle themselves that much. And we can learn from them. And, you know, as Sokni Rinpoche, the great Tibetan teacher, says, think the same thought again and again, that's fine. But ten is enough. <laughs> or as this uh, guru of mine said back in the 70s, once a philosopher, twice a pervert. <laughs> Okay. <laughs>